Section three of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume two, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colly McMahon. Chapter one, Medici in Rome, by F. X. Kraus, Part two. Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici came forth from the conclave summoned on March 4, 1513, as Pope Leo X. Since Piero had been drowned on the 9th of December, 1503, Giovanni had become the head of the House of Medici. He was only 38 years of age at the election, to which he had had himself conveyed in a litter from Florence to Rome, suffering from fistula. The jest on his short-sightedness, Multicetci cardinalis creavere cecum decimum leonum, by no means expressed public opinion, which rejoiced at his accession. The possesso, which took place on April 11th, with the great procession to the Lateran, was the most brilliant spectacle of its kind that Christian Rome had ever witnessed. What was expected of Leo was proclaimed in the inscription which Agostino Chigi had attached to his house for the occasion. Olim habuit Cypris sua tempora, tempora mavors, olim habuit sua nunc tempora palis habet. But other expectations were not wanting, and a certain goldsmith gave voice to them in the line, Mars fuit est palis, Cypria semper ero. To Leo X this entry owed its name. The secla leonis have been called the secla aurea, and his reign has been compared with that of Augustus. Erasmus, who saw him in Rome in 1507 and 1509, praises his kindness and humanity, his magnanimity and his learning, the indescribable charm of his speech, his love of peace and of the fine arts, which cause no sighs, no tears. He places him as high above all his predecessors as Peter's chair is above all thrones in the world. Pallavicino says of Leo that he was well known for his kindness of heart, learned in all sciences, and had passed his youth in the greatest innocence. That as Pope he let himself be blinded by appearances, which often confused the good with the great, and chose rather the applause of the crowd than the prosperity of the nation, and thus was tempted to exercise too magnificent a generosity. Such expressions from one who is the unconditional apologist of all the popes cannot make much impression, but it is noticeable that even Sarpi says Leo, noble by birth and education, brought many aptitudes to the papacy, especially a remarkable knowledge of classical literature, humanity, kindness, the greatest liberality, an avowed intention of supporting artists and learned men, who for many years had enjoyed no such favor in the Holy See. He would have made an ideal pope had he added to these qualities some knowledge of the things of religion, and a little more inclination to piety, both of them things for which he cared little. The favorable opinion entertained of Leo X by his contemporaries long held the field in history. His reign has been regarded as at once the zenith and cause of the greatest period of the Renaissance. His wide liberality, his unfeigned enthusiasm for the creations of genius, his unprejudiced taste for all that beautifies humanity, and his sympathy for all the culture of his time have been the theme of a traditional chorus of laudation. 
more recent criticism has recognized in the reign of leo a period of incipient decline and has traced that decline to the follies and frailties of the pontiff with regard to the political methods of leo some difference of opinion may still be entertained some have seen in him the single-minded and unscrupulous friend of medici and florence prepared to sacrifice alike the interests of the church and of the papacy to the advancement of his family to others he is the clear-sighted statesman who perceiving the future changes and difficulties of the church sought for the papacy the firm support of a hereditary alliance truth may lie midway between these two opinions if we view leo as a man similar doubts encounter us paramount in his character were his gentleness and cheerfulness his good nature his indulgence both for himself and others his love of peace and hatred of war but these amiable qualities were coupled with an insincerity and a love of tortuous ways which grew to be a second nature nor must we overlook the fact that leo's policy of peace was a mere illusion his hopes and intentions were quite frustrated by the actual course of affairs on his personal character the great blot must rest that he passed his life in intellectual self-indulgence and took his pleasure in hunting and gaming while the teutonic north was bursting the bonds of reverence and authority which bound europe to rome even for the restoration of the rule of the medici in florence the medician popes made only futile attempts cosimo i was the first to accomplish it leo had absorbed the culture of his time but he did not possess the ability to look beyond that time a diplomatist rather than a statesman his creations were only the feats of a political virtuoso who sacrificed the future in order to control the present even the greatness of the mycanus crumbles before recent criticism the zenith of renaissance culture falls in the age of julius the second ariosto's light verses bibiena's prurient la calandria the paintings in the bathroom of the vatican the rejection of the dante monument planned by michelangelo the misapplication of funds collected for the crusade to purposes of mere dynastic interest leo's political double-dealing which disordered all the affairs of italy and indeed of christendom all this must shake our faith in him as protector of the good and beautiful in art his portrait by raphael with its intelligent but cold and sinister face may assist to destroy any illusions which we may have had about his personality the harshness and violence of leo's greater predecessor julius brought down on him the hatred of his contemporaries and won for his successor an immense popularity without further effort the spiritual heir of lorenzo il magnifico rome and all italy acclaimed leo pacis restauratorum felicissimum literatorum amatorum and erasmus proclaimed to the world that an age worse than that of iron was suddenly transformed into one of gold and there can be no doubt that when leo x was greeted on his accession like titus as the deliciae generis humani he made every disposition to respond to these expectations and prove himself the most liberal of patrons the pope however did not long keep this resolution his weakness of purpose his inclination to luxury enjoyment and pleasures soon quenched his sense of the gravity of life 
and all his higher perceptions, so that a swift and sad decline followed on the first promise. On Leo's accession, he found a number of great public buildings in progress, which had been begun under his great predecessor, but were still unfinished. Among them were the colossal palace planned by Bramante in the Via Giulia, St. Peter's, also begun by him, and his work of joining the Vatican with the Belvedere, besides the Logie and buildings in Loretto. Leo, who was not in the least affected by the passion of building, Il Mal di Pietra, did not carry on these undertakings. He even hindered Michelangelo from finishing the tomb of Julius II, so little reverence had he for the memory of the Pope to whom he owed his own position. Only the Logier were finished, since they could not remain as Bermonte had left them. Even after Bermonte's death, there was no lack of architects who could have finished St. Peter's. Besides Raphael, who succeeded to his post as architect, San Gallo and San Savino, Peruzzi and Giuliano Leno, waited in vain for commissions. While Raphael, in a letter, relates that the Pope had set aside 60,000 ducats a year for the continuation of the building, and talked to Fra Gicondo about it every day, he might soon after have told how Leo went no further, but stopped at the good intention. As a matter of fact, work almost entirely ceased, because the money was not forthcoming. There is therefore no reason to reproach Raphael with the delay in building. On the contrary, by not pressing Leo to an energetic prosecution of the work, Raphael probably did the building the greatest service, since the Pope's mind was full of plans for which Bramante's great ideas would have been entirely forsaken. No one could see more clearly than Raphael the harm which would have thus resulted. Leo X not only neglected the undertakings of his predecessor, he created nothing new in the way of monumental buildings beyond the portico of the Navicella and a few pieces of restoration in San Cosimate and St. John Lateran. The work he had done beyond the walls in his villas and hunting lodges in Magliana, at Palo, Montalto, and Montefiascone served only the purposes of his pleasure. Of the more important palaces built in the city, two fall to the account of his relatives Lorenzo and Giulio, that of the Lanti, Piazza dei Capritari, and the beautiful Villa Madama on the Monte Mario, begun by Raphael, Giulio Romano, and Giovanni da Udini, but never finished. Cardinal Giulio de' Medici it was who carried on the building of the sacristy in San Lorenzo at Florence, in which Michelangelo was to place the tombs of Giuliano and Lorenzo, but the façade which the Pope had planned for the church was never executed, nor were any of the palaces built by dignitaries of the church under Leo X of importance with the exceptions of a part of the Palazzo Farnese and the Palazzo di Venezia. Even the palaces and dwelling-houses built by Andrea Sansovino, San Gallo, and Raphael will not bear comparison with the creations of the previous pontificate, nor with the later parts of the Palazzo Farnese at Caprarola. Sculpture had flourished under Pius II in the days when Mino of Fiesole, and Paolo Romano were in Rome. It could point to the very honorable achievements under Alexander the Sixth and Julius the Second, Andrea Sansovino's monuments of the Cardinals Basso and Sforza in Santa Maria del Popolo, 
but this art also declined under leo x for the work done by andrea sansovino and loretto under his orders falls in the time of clement the seventh after whose death in fifteen thirty four the greater part of the plastic ornament of the santa casa was executed the cardinals and prelates who died in rome between fifteen thirteen and fifteen twenty one received only poor and insignificant monuments and leo's colossal statue in araceli the work of domenico damio can only be called a soulless monstrosity painting flourished more under this pope who certainly was a faithful patron and friend to raphael the protection he showed to this great master is and always will be leo's best and noblest title to fame but he allowed leonardo to go to france when after bramante's death he might easily have won him had he bestowed on him the post of piombatore apostolico instead of giving it to his maitre de placers the shallow-minded fra mariano sanio cucalatus he allowed michelangelo to return to florence and though he loaded raphael with honors it is a fact that he was five years behindhand with the payment of his salary as architect of st peter's a letter of messer baldassare torini de pescia turns on the ridiculous investiture of the jester mariano with the tonaca of bramante performed by the pope himself when bramante was scarce cold in his grave this leaves a most painful impression and makes it very doubtful whether leo ever took his patronage of the arts very seriously in the same way his love of peace is shown in a very strange light during the latter half of his reign by the high-handed campaign against the duke of urbino fifteen sixteen the menace to ferrara fifteen nineteen the crafty enticing of giampaolo baglione lord of perugia to rome and his murder despite the safe conduct promised him the war against ludovico freducci lord of fermo the annexation of the towns and fortresses in the province of ancona the attempt on the life of the duke of ferrara the betrayal of francis i and the league with charles v in fifteen twenty one the senseless extravagance of the court the constant succession of very mundane festivals hunting parties and other amusements left leo in continual embarrassment for money and led him into debt not only to all the bankers but to his own officials they even drove him to unworthy extortion such as followed on the conspiracy of cardinal petrucci and the pardon granted to his accomplices or that which was his motive for the creation of thirty-one cardinals in a single day all this taken together brings us to the conclusion that leo's one real merit was his patronage of raphael despite the noble and generous way in which his reign began the pope soon fell into an effeminate life of self-indulgence spent among players and buffoons a life rich in undignified farce and offensive jests but poor in every kind of positive achievement the pope laughed hunted and gambled he enjoyed the papacy had he not said to his brother giuliano on his accession godiamoci il papato poici dio cilahadato though he himself has not been accused of sensual excesses the moral sense of the pope could not be delicate when he found fit to amuse himself with indecent comedies like la calandria and on april thirtieth fifteen eighteen attended the wedding of agostino chigi with his concubine of many years standing himself placing the ring on the hand of the bride 
already mother of a large family. Nor can Leo's reign, apart from his own share in it, be regarded as the best period of the Renaissance. The great masters had done their best work before 1513. Bramante died at the beginning of Leo's pontificate. Michelangelo had painted the Sistine Chapel from 1508 to 1512. Leonardo the Cena in 1496. Raphael the Stanza della Signatura, 1508 to 11. The later stanze are far inferior to that masterpiece. The work of his pupils comes more to the fore in the execution of the paintings. And in his own work, as also in that of Michelangelo, the germ of decadence is already visible, and a slight tendency to Barocco style is to be seen in both. The autumn wind is blowing, and the first leaves begin to fall. The truth results that the zenith of Renaissance art falls in the time between 1496 and 1512, during which the Last Supper, the roof of the Sistine Chapel, and the Stanza della Segnatura were painted, and Bramante's plans for St. Peter's were drawn up. We can even mark a narrower limit and say that the four wall paintings of the Stanza della Segnatura mark the point at which medieval and modern thought touch one another. The narrow medieval world ceases. The modern world stands before us developed in all its fullness and freedom. One may indeed doubt whether all the meaning of this contrast was quite clear to the mind of Julius II, but after all, that is a matter of secondary importance. For it is not the individual who decides in such matters. Without being aware of it, he is borne on by his time and must execute the task that history has laid upon him. Great men of all times are those who have understood the cry from the inmost heart of a whole nation or generation, and consciously or unconsciously have accomplished what the hour demanded. It has been in like manner represented that literature passed through a golden age under Leo X, but considerable deductions must be made from the undiscriminating eulogies of earlier writers. Erasmus has reflected in his letters the great impression made by Rome, the true seat and home of all Latin culture. Well might Cardinal Raphael Riario write to him, Everyone who has a name in science throngs hither. Each has a fatherland of his own, but Rome is a common fatherland, a foster mother, and a comforter to all men of learning. It is long since these words were written, far too long for the honor of Catholicism and of the papacy. But at that time, under Julius II, they were really true. A circle of highly cultured cardinals and nobles, Riario, Gramani, Adriano di Cornetto, Farnese, Giovanni del Medici himself in his beautiful Palazzo Madama, his brother Giuliano il Magnifico, and his cousin Giulio, afterwards Clement VII, gathered poets and learned men about them that dotto campagna of which ariosto spoke to them they opened their libraries and collections clubs were formed which met at the houses of angelo colocci alberto rio de carpi goritz or savoia the poets and pamphleteers to whom arsili dedicated his poem de poetis urbanus gave vent to their wit on paschino or on sansovino's statue in sant'agostino they met in the salons of the beautiful Imperia, in the banks described by Bandello, among them Beroaldo the Younger, who sang the praises of that most celebrated of modern courtesans. 
Fedro Ingiriami, the friend of Erasmus and Raphael, Colocci, and even the serious Sadaletto. It is characteristic of this time, which placed wit and beauty above morals, that when Imperia died at the age of twenty-six, she received an honorable burial in the chapel of San Gregorio, and her epitaph praised the Cortesana Romanaque, digna tanto nomine, rare inter homines forme specimen dedit. And although women no longer played so prominent a part at the papal court as they had done under Innocent the Eighth and Alexander the Sixth, yet as Bibiena wrote to Giuliano de' Medici, the arrival of noble ladies was extremely welcome, as bringing with it something of a corte del donne. The activity of the greater number of literary men and wits, whose names have most contributed to the glory of Leo's pontificate, dates back to Giulio's time. So, for instance, Molza, Vita, Giovio, Valeriano, whose dialogue De Infelicitate Literatorum tells of the fate of many of his friends, Porzio, Capella, Bembo, who as Latinist was the chief representative of the cult of Cicero, and as a writer in the vulgar tongue gave Italy her prose, and Sadaletto, who chronicled the discovery of the Laocoon group, Pantano, too, and Sanazaro, Fracastan, and Navagero had already done their best work. Nothing could be more unjust than to deny that Giovanni de' Medici himself had a highly cultured mind and an excellent knowledge of literature. It may be that Lorenzo had destined him for the papacy from his birth. Certainly he gave him the most liberal education. He gave him Poliziano, Marsilio, Pico della Mirandola, Johannes Agirapolos, Gentili D'Arezzo for his teachers and constant companions, and to teach him Greek, Demetrius Chalcondylus and Petrus Egenetta. Afterwards, Bernardo di Dovizi, Bibiena, was his best known tutor. In Belletra, Giovanni had made an attempt with Greek verses, none of which have survived. Of his Latin poems, the only examples handed down to us are the hendecasyllables on the statue of Lucrezia and an elegant epigram, written during his pontificate, on the death of Celso Melini, well known for his lawsuit in 1519 and his tragic death by drowning. Nor can it be denied that the opening years of this pontificate were of great promise and seem to announce a fresh impetus, or, to speak more exactly, the successful continuation of what had long since begun. Amongst the men whom the young Pope gathered round him were many of excellent understanding and character, such as the Milanese Agostino Trivulzio, who later on was to do clement signal service, Alessandro Cesarini, Andrea della Valle, Paolo Emilio Cezzi, Baldassare Torini, Tommaso De Vio, Lorenzo Campeggi, the noble Ludovico di Canosa from Verona, most of whom wore the cardinal's hat. Bembo and Sadaletto were the chief ornaments of his literary circle. To them was added the celebrated Greek John Lascaris, once under the protection of Bessarion, then of Lorenzo il Magnifico and Louis Twelfth, in France the teacher of Budaeus, in Venice of Erasmus. Leo X, on his accession, at once summoned him to Rome, and on his account founded a school of Greek in the palace of the Cardinal of Sion on Monte Cavallo. 
Lascaris's pupil, Marcus Musurus, was also summoned from Venice in 1516 to assist in this school. At the same time, the Pope commissioned Beroaldus to publish the newly discovered writings of Tacitus. A measure, which might have proved of the utmost importance, was the foundation of the University of Rome by the bull Dum Suavissimos of November 4, 1513. This was a revival and confirmation of an already existing academy, in which under Alexander the Sixth and Julius the Second, able men such as Beroaldo the Younger, Fedro, Casali, and Pio had taught, and to which now others were summoned, among them Agostino Nifo, Botticella, Cristofaro Aretino, Chalcondilus, Parasio, and others. Vigerio and Tommaso de Vio, Cardinal of Geta, also lectured on theology, and Giovanni Gazzadini on law. Petrus Sabinus, Antonio Fabro of Amaterno, and Raphael Brandolini are mentioned among the lecturers, and even a professor of Hebrew, Agatius Guidicerius, was appointed. Cardinal Raphael Riario acted as chancellor. The list of the professors given by Ranazzi numbers 88. 11 in canon law, 20 in law, 15 in medicine, and 5 in philosophy. It was another merit of Leo's that he established a Greek printing press, which printed several books in 1517 and 1518. Chigi had, some years before, set up a Greek press in his palace, from which came the first Greek book printed in Rome, a Pindar, in 1515. The Pope himself kept up his interest in Greek studies, and retained as custodian of his private library one of the best judges of the Greek idiom, Guarino de Favera, who published the first Thesaurus Linguae Grecae in 1496, and whom he nominated Bishop of Navarra. Unfortunately, these excellent beginnings were, for the most part, not carried on. It was not Leo's fault, but his misfortune, that many of the most gifted men he had summoned were soon removed by death but we cannot acquit him of having ceded Lascaris, like Leonardo, to France in 1518, and allowed Bembo to return discontented to Padua. He did not secure Marcantonio Flaminio, and held Sadoletto at a distance for a very long time. The continual dearth of money in the papal treasury was no doubt the chief cause of this change of policy. Even before 1517, the salaries of the professors could not be paid, and their number had to be diminished. And this was the necessary consequence of Leo's ridiculous prodigality on his pleasures and his court. Well might Efra Mariano exclaim, Beviamo al babbo santo, ceoni altra cosa eberla. Serious and respectable men left him, and a pack of pazzi, buffoni, e simul sorta di piacevoli remained in the Pope's audience chambers with whom he, the Pope himself, gamed and jested day after day, cum risu et hilaritate. Such were the people that he now raised to honor and position. What money he had, he spent for their carousals. No wonder that this vermin flattered his vanity and sounded his praises as Leo Deus Noster. But beside this, we must remember that, as is universally admitted, Leo was extremely generous to the poor. The anonymous author of the Vita Leonis X, reprinted in Roscoe's Life, gives express evidence as to this, 
agentes pietate ac liberalitate est prosecutus and adds that according to accounts which are however not very well attested he supported needy and deserving ecclesiastics of other nationalities but he too remarks that leo's chief if not his only anxiety was to lead a pleasant and untroubled life in consequence of which he spent his days at music and play and left the business of government entirely in the hands of his cousin giulio who was better fitted for the task and an industrious worker unfortunately he admitted not only buffoons to his games of cards but also corrupt men like pietro aretino who lived on the pope's generosity as early as fifteen twenty and in return extolled him as the pattern of all pontiffs the appointment of the german jew giamaria as castellan and count of Ruccio was even in rome an unusual reward for skilled performance on the lute and even for the third successor of alexander the sixth it was venturesome to let the poet querno attired as venus and supported by two cupids declaim verses to him at the cosmalia in 1519 we have already mentioned the scandalous carnival of that year and the theatre for which raphael was forced to paint the scenery a year later an unknown savant under the mask of paschino complained of the sad state of the sciences in rome of the exile of the muses and the starvation of professors and literary men from all this data the conclusion has been drawn that leo x was by no means a mechanist of the fine arts and sciences that the high enthusiasm for them shown in his letters as edited by bembo and sadaletto betrays more of the thoughts of his clever secretary than his own ideas and that his literary dilettantism was lacking in all artistic perception and all delicate cultivation of taste leo has been thought to owe his undeserved fame to the circumstance that he was the son of lorenzo and that his accession seemed at the time destined to put an end to the sad confusions and wars of the last decades moreover throughout the long pontificate of clement the seventh and equally under the pressure of the ecclesiastical reaction in the time of paul the fourth no allusion was allowed to the wrongdoing of this leonine period till at last the real circumstances were so far forgotten that the fine flower of art and literature in the first twenty years of the sixteenth century was attributed to the medicean pope but there are points to be noted on the other side even if we discount much of the praise which poliziano lavishes on his pupil in deference to his father we cannot question the conspicuous talent of giovanni de medici the exceptionally careful literary education which he had enjoyed and his liberal and wise conduct during his cardinalship we must also esteem it to his credit that as pope he continued to be the friend of raphael and that in rome and italy at least he did not oppress freedom of conscience nor sacrifice the free and noble character of the best of the renaissance nor can it be overlooked that his pontificate made an excellent beginning though certainly the decline soon set in the pontiff's good qualities became less apparent his faults more conspicuous and events proved that as in so many other instances the man's intrinsic merit was not great enough to bear his exaltation to the highest dignity of christendom without injury to his personality such a change in outward position 
promotion to an absolute sway not inherited, intercourse with a host of flatterers and servants who idolized him, there were two thousand dependents at Leo's court. All this is almost certain to be fatal to the character of the man to whose lot it falls. Seldom does the possessor of the highest dignity find this enormous burden a source and means of spiritual illumination and moral advancement. Mediocre natures soon develop an immovable obstinacy, the despair of any reasonable adviser, and which is none the more tolerable for having received the varnish of a piety that worships itself. Talented natures too easily fall victims to megalomania, and by extravagant and ill-considered projects and undertakings drag their age with them into an abyss of ruin. Weak and sensual natures give themselves up to enjoyment, and consider the highest power merely as a license to make merry. Leo was not a coarse voluptuary like Alexander the Sixth, but he certainly was an intellectual epicurean such as has seldom been known. Extremes should be avoided in forming a judgment of the pontificate and character of this prince. Not the objective historian, but the flattering politician spoke in Erasmus when he lauded the three great benefits which Leo had conferred on humanity, the restoration of peace, of the sciences, and of the fear of God. It was a groundless suspicion that overshot the mark when Martin Luther accused Leo of disbelief in the immortality of the soul and John Bale, in 1574, spread abroad the supposed remark of the Pope de Bembo. All ages can testify enough how profitable that fable of Christ has been to us and our company. Hundreds of writers have copied this from Bale without verification. Much of Leo's character can be explained by the fact that he was a true son of the South, the personification of the soft Florentine temperament. This accounts for his childish joy in the highest honor of Christendom. Questo mi da piacere, ce la mia tiara. The words of the office which he was reading, when five days before his death, news was brought to him of the taking of Milan by his troops, may well serve as motto for this reign, lacking not sunshine and glory, but all serious success and all power. Utsine timore de manu inimicorum nostrorum liberati serviamus ili. This pontificate truly was, as Gregor Ovius has described it, a revelry of culture, which Ariosto accompanied with a poetic obligato in his many-colored Orlando. This poem was in truth the image of Italy reveling in sensual and intellectual luxury, the ravishing, seductive, musical, and picturesque creation of decadence, just as Dante's poem had been the mirror of the manly power of the nation. End of section 3. Recording by Colleen McMahon.